Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 21st, 2017, and this is episode 1957 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about growing your own food from a standpoint of just basic gardening. Um, I, I started to think about this, and over the years, as I've developed in my knowledge of permaculture, regenerative agriculture, etc., I've gotten more and more advanced with the presentations that I give you guys on that, and that if you're somebody that's that's just coming at this, or even if you've been with us a long time and you've heard this stuff, and intellectually you have it, but now finally, you know, you, I'm going to get the place where I can start to grow my own food. And you, you go out and you feel that you have the need to start renting excavators and putting in swales and giant hugel mounds and all this other stuff, um, getting 57 different animals and all this stuff, when what you really want in that first year is high-density food production that a basic garden not only is something you should do first, but if you do it right, it will be a long-term asset. And there's time for all these other things. But what we want to do when we, we, we establish either a new homestead or we say we're going to make that transition from home to homestead. So the suburbanite also that's tuning in relatively new and says, you know what, Jack is right. All this grass is stupid. You know, as my uncle used to say, if you can't eat it, sell it or smoke it, kill it, right? Um, the, 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 you know, I, I want to be able to grow food, and Jack talks about all this highly complicated duck integrated and all. I just want to grow food. And I want to provide a resource that I think will help people do that. And I think it will help people who are maybe even having success with the more advanced stuff, but just don't have the level of production they want to out of a basic garden. That's what today is going to be about. I'm going to give you a lot of amendments and products today. Some of them are going to be, you need this, especially in a new established system. And others are going to be, this is nice to have. Others, these are good kind of a kicker to make things working better. And some are going to be, these are the things to use if things start to go wrong. You won't hear a lot about pesticides today. Um, I, I will give you a little bit about dealing with basic pest issues with a systemic thing you can make yourself called garlic and pepper tea. And I'll talk about a few other little things here and there, but I'm going to focus mainly on the fertility aspects today. And in the future, we'll do another show on pest problems. And keeping that in a fully natural way. I don't even want to say organic anymore because the government ruins every perfectly good word it touches. An all natural way is the way that I'm going to come at this today. And a way that will be incredibly productive. And all of the things that we're going to do, even when we're bringing in a supplemental product like liquid seaweed or garret juice or azomite or whatever, will either have a lasting effect or no long-term detrimental effect. Okay, so that's what we're going to be doing today. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. 
Hey guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is New England Defensive Training. They provide NRA-certified instruction and training in self-defense in and around Maine. You can go to NewEnglandDefense.com to learn more or check them out at TSPBiz.com where you can find all the different people in the TSP business community that are out there that want to do business with you or you can be found for as little as $5 for every six months. Learn more at TSPBiz.com. All right, so with that knocked out, let's take a look at the history segment. I have a pretty diverse group of stuff to pick from today. Um, the year is 1957 because the episode is 1957. I have The Mad Bomber is Caught by Profiling. And I have The Killer Bees Have Escaped. And I have Operation Power Flight. The B-52 flies around the world. That one's contributed by Southpaw Ben. Notable Births, who was born this year? Uh, Alex says, I'm not saying there was something weird about 57, but sheesh. Osama bin Laden was born this year, died at 54, at least that's the story. Andrew Como, 56th governor of uh, Democrat of New York. Cindy Sheehan, the anti-war protester. In entertainment, LeVar Burton, who was Jordy LaForge in Star Trek. John Lesseter, chief creative officer for Pixar Animation and director for Toy Story, A Bug's Life and Cars. Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson. Yep, Nancy Cartwright is the voice of Bart Simpson. It's a chick doing a dude. Dan Castanella, uh, the voice of Homer Simpson, is born this year. And Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting year. Year in film, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, it's a great movie. The Three Faces of Eve and An Affair to Remember. In music, Please Stay by Me, Diana, from Paul Anka. I'm All Shook Up by Elvis Presley. And Goodness Gracious, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. None of which are the number one song of the year, but I will have a number one song of the year for you at the end of today's show. And I'll have a little bit of an overview of how we are truly entering the true age of rock and roll in 1957. In the, or actually, we're there. I should say we're there. I'll cover that at the end. In other news, Felix Wankel gets his prototype engine running. It's a rotary engine that Mazda will eventually pick up. The Soviet Sputnik 1 and 2 orbit the Earth. And the U.S. steps up the Atlas ICBM, oh, I mean space program, and the Little Rock Niner escorted to school by the 101st Airborne. Eisenhower made desegregation happen because a judge said it was his constitutional duty. Eisenhower will be the last constitutional president for some time, if ever, in the opinion of Alex Rugg. I agree. When I look back at Eisenhower, I don't see everything the guy did was great. What I do believe is that everything he did, he checked against the Constitution because duty freaking meant something to him. And, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. 
Uh, that, that's that's my whole whole on that. Uh, the, the segment that I'm going to read for you guys today is Operation Power Flight. The B-52 flies around the world from Southpaw Bend. Between January 16th and January 18th, five B-52 bombers, two of which were spares in case something went wrong, with three main planes flew around the world, taking off from Castle Air Force Base in California, refueling multiple times as they went. On the one of uh, one of the bombers failed to refuel, forcing it to abort the mission and land early on January 18th. The three main planes landed, having flown 45 hours and 19 minutes, over twice as fast as the first non-stop circumnavigation performed by Lucky Lady 2. In 1949, the purpose of the mission was to demonstrate the Air Force's capability to be able to drop a hydrogen bomb anywhere in the world. All crew members of the flight were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. My take by South Bob Ben. With tensions flaring in Europe and the Middle East after the Suez Canal crisis, the U.S. wanted to show the USSR that it could still wreak havoc on the USSR, even though it was halfway around the globe from major population centers. This was one of the biggest benefits and drawbacks of the U.S. locations, far away from all of the wars and conflicts occurring in Europe, which gave it protection from being directly invaded by the Red Army. However, it also meant that it was harder for the U.S. to directly assert its military might, as any full-scale land battle would require shipping millions of men across the ocean. So the U.S. had to focus on its Navy and Air Force to better allow the U.S. to protect its power. As a result to this day, the U.S. has an extremely large Navy and Air Force, which it uses to police the world, because its policy hasn't matured so much since the Cold War era. And I think that's the chief problem I have with U.S. force today around the world, that we see it as our, our role to, to control the world. Not to rule the world, to control and influence the world. Because only we can, only we can do good. Um, this makes me think of an idiot, an absolute idiot, that I recently had an interaction with on Facebook, So I posted a thing of how our CIA intervened in France's last election. Not, not 1957, like this last most recent one. The CIA of the United States of America intervened in France's election. It is a fact. It is known. It is public knowledge now. They did it. They didn't sort of do it. They didn't kind of do it. They freaking did it. And his first comment was reasonable, I thought. I didn't know where it was going. It was, well, why did they do it? Some other people talked to me. He says, no, my point is they did it to put... Uh, a person was pro-U.S. in power. That's a good thing. And I don't mind. This is, this is, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but paraphrase quote and, and the point completely spot on. I don't mind when we intervene in other nations' elections because we do it to put pro-U.S. people in power. I do mind when other nations meddle in our elections. You want to know how you get Hitler and you get things like Hitler? That's how you do it. The mindset that it's okay if our guys do it, even when it's not okay if every, everybody else shouldn't do it, but it's okay for us to do. That is myopic, blind patriotism. And it is more dangerous than a person who has no patriotism at all. It really is. The person that's an anti-patriot, they just don't give a shit about anything but themselves, and they go off on their own, and they don't bother anybody generally. The person that is a myopic, blind patriot will support those in power who will do things that they know to be wrong because they'll believe that they must be right because it's us. And a lot of that mindset is coming right out of this time frame. My take by Jack Spierko. So I wanted to kind of bring that to your attention 
And I also wanted to throw something out real quick. So yesterday I took a question on somebody that's an oil field uh, engineer who's out of work due to downturns in his sector of the oil fields and was looking for a second job, basically, and I did the best I could with it. Um, this is community in action. So, dude, if you're out there listening and you haven't gone to the show notes for yesterday's episode, 1956, which I did type in 46 in the title. Sorry about that, but I fixed it now. Um, Angus Bangus, who's been with us a long time, uh, has a comment there on the forum, and it says, Oil engineer looking for work. We're hiring engineers all over the place. Utility industry. Hit me up here and I'll get you more info. So, dude, if you're the person that wrote in and you want you know, to take that third option, which is let's find a career that's better for us, um, get in touch with Angus Bangus. You can either comment directly on the, 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 the website or email me, and I have his email address. I don't want to give it out publicly. I'll connect you guys. That would be great. And, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military law enforcement Peace Corps or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. All right, so I want to get into... Uh, this this topic of producing your own food. And I want to start out with a little story. A little story that explains why the concept of the green thumb is a myth. And even when you're doing everything right, if you have a failure, something doesn't work, you have a pest problem or whatever, and, and somebody else is doing it, it just looks like everything works for them, it may not be anything they're doing. It may be situational. And, and here's the example. My, my buddy David has got zucchini envy on me, big time. Uh, I produced a whole shitload of zucchinis last year. He tried to grow zucchinis, and he lo and David is awesome, man. David produces way more food in this type of a, a high density situation than I do. Um, but he wanted to do some zucchinis, and they're supposed to be the easiest thing in the world. And people hear stories of you know people throwing them in your car in the summertime because they have too many to get rid of them and whatever. So he he gets these zucchinis, and he like loves on them. He gives them like all the love they could ever have. And the squash bugs just tear it up. And, and down here, that's, that's kind of how they are. So I have these berms over in my west pasture where I put in some locust trees and stuff last year. It's just kind of an improvement project. And I threw a bunch of basil seed and stuff out there, and, and that did pretty well. Planted a bunch of other trees like bush cherries and stuff like that. But there's, it's like all the bushes and trees are really small. So there's all this space still there, even with a high-density uh, planting. So I took like two packages of um, zucchini and a little stand-in plant tool that I have, which is like a pipe. You stick it in the ground, you push it, you drop a seed in, and it closes. And I just like planted in two of the berms like just an ass load of zucchini. Well, the squash bugs, um, lack of taking care of them, lack of irrigation and all, took its toll on a bunch of them, but several of them grew up, came up, grew really big, and... I mean, I actually had some zucchinis that were, like, way oversized because I just didn't get out there to look at them much. So he comes over and he sees all the zucchinis. He's like, this is bullshit. 
He's like, I, you know, I, I took my plants and I love. You throw them out here in the middle of a field and they just grow. Is that because I'm a better grower than David? No, it's because we put in all of that compost. It was actually a pretty good growing environment. It did get some irrigation. I planted the shit out of it, and the stars sort of aligned for that area for that plant that year. And these weren't just productive. These plants were the leaves were deep dark green. They were gorgeous. And you know what? By the end of the season, the squash bugs got them too. They just produced a hell of a lot before it happened. That's not because I'm good. So I, I want all of your frustrations when you see other people do something and have a lot of success with it, just let go of it. It's all a matter of figuring out what's going to work in your area for the thing you're trying to do. So with that in mind, let's define the goals of a family garden, okay? And I think that especially when people learn about permaculture and organic and natural and all, everybody wants to go full, all-in, right out, and they want to grow 5,000 different things. They don't want to use any amendments whatsoever. They want to let nature do the work and trust nature and put in hugel beds. And blah, blah. Stop. Let's define the goals. If we define the goals, we can build a path to accomplishing those goals in the first year or at least by the second year. So maybe we're at a break even on some of the goals in our first year, but now we've got the skill and we've got the land developed and now our second year gets easier and easier and better and better every year. And yet we still get a yield our first year. So the first goal of a family garden is produce food. I know that sounds crazy, but you know what? You can do everything like where the purple permaculture people come and praise you for your goodness and the earth is, is being healed and all and whatever, okay? If no food comes out, it's a failure, and you're going to feel like it's a failure. You're going to get demotivated, and you're not going to want to keep doing it. Number two, you want to save money. Now, I want to be clear. You're probably not going to save money comparing the price of producing your peppers to the price of producing commercial grocery store peppers at the peak of the season when they're dirt cheap. You're probably not. But if you compare it to, produce, you know, to buying the equivalent product, an all-organic pepper, you can probably break even the first year and definitely save money the second year. And some things that you get, you hit a home run with even your first year, you can save a lot of money purely just on how much that you're producing. But if we're not going to save some money, then unless we're looking at it purely from a self-sufficiency standpoint, a preparedness standpoint, if we're not going to save some money, why don't we just go buy the best quality stuff we can from the market? We can get organic, we can get locally produced, there's all kinds of stuff we can get. So we, we got to save money, at least long term. There's a lot of times with stuff like gardens, there's a, a financial hit in the first year, and it takes a while to get the ROI out, but it's got to come at some point, or it's not worth doing. We want to improve the quality of our life. If, if we get food, and we even produce it from a, a straight financial balance sheet cheaper, but we're spending six hours a day working on our garden, unless we really want to do that, we're not improving our quality of life. We want it to be an asset that it does most of the work and we tend it. We tend and maintain gardens. We don't work in them every day. We work to get them going, right? We do a little work in different parts where we do some really more intense maintenance like mid-season weeding and end of the year, putting it to bed, all that good stuff. But in general, through the growing season, the sun and the soil and the plants should do the majority of the work for us. Or it's not improving our quality of life. And if we're getting the good food that we talked out of and saving money, it's improving the quality of our life. And, and so that's a goal. And another goal is it should provide better nutrition than what we can get from the store. 
Now, that can be measured a couple different ways. One, because now we can afford to eat food that the government would call organic if we certified it. Where if we didn't, we would be buying cheaper food um, and, and therefore less quality. And I think that the home-produced food, I think the home-produced food that, that somebody that dumps a miracle grow on it is probably healthier than most organic food in the supermarket, honestly. Honestly. But that, that's neither here nor there. But the other way we can get it is just the quantity. If, if we have an abundant garden, we're going to be eating that food in quantity on a daily basis. Where if we have to go to the store and buy it, we're gonna, you know, we're not gonna use it as effectively. So that's that's the four goals: produce food, save money, improve quality of life, provide a healthier nutrition, and that's what we're trying to do. So I want you to understand. The reason I led with that is I want you to understand everything I'm telling you today is about meeting those goals in your first year. It's not about trying to say, hey, look at me. Everything I did was perfect, and I just put the seed in the ground, and heaven blew upon it, and it grew into a beanstalk that Jack climbed up and brought me a whole bunch of beans, right? It's about getting those goals met. So the first thing I want to ask is, if I told you today that I expected that you were going to put a garden this year, would you say, well, then I'm going to do raised beds? And like 90% of people would. And I've talked about this a little recently, so I'll go quick with it. But I wanted to address this today because it's a really important thing. There's some questions you should be asking yourself if you're going to go with raised beds. One, what is your ground like? If you have relatively decent soil, like when I lived in Pennsylvania, the house we had for three years in Northampton, Pennsylvania, it was an old piece of farmland that had been turned residential. And it was farmland back when farmers farm for real, right? There wasn't a lot of chemical lag, nothing like today, and it was really quite fertile. It needed some help because nothing had been done with it, but there was no way I, I, I saw the need to endure the expense and labor to put in raised beds there. We dug a plot and, and turned in a little bit of material and planted it, and we had great results. We, did, we didn't do 10% of what I'm going to tell you to do today as like full on make sure it works. And I want to tell you that too because the things I'm going to give you when I give you the laundry list of stuff are things that really I think you should have, maybe you need, and you're kind of troubleshooting tools as you work your way down the list. And you look at your results and when something's not working, you add that to it. You don't just go all in with all of it at once. But what's the ground like before we worried about raised beds? Number two, what's your climate like? Honestly, in Texas, if you have the soil for it, you're better off without a raised bed. I know it sounds crazy. But as you get into your summer months, the deeper you're in the ground, the cooler the temperature. Well, Jack, why do you have raised beds? Because I have four inches of clay and then I have rock. That's why. I don't have enough, I don't have enough dirt. That's why I'm doing I'm going almost full on aquaponics on everything at this point because it's just easier here. But if I had deeper soils, I would just do in-ground garden beds like I did in Pennsylvania, both the house I had and my grandfather's place. My grandfather, we never had raised beds. The beds might appear a little bit higher because when we, when we turned them over and incorporated material into them and mulched them, that built them up a little bit. But we never, there was never a border um, at all. I went out every year with an edger, which is basically a flat, it looks like a shovel without a bend. And I edge, uh, my grandfather, he was big on the straight lines thing, right? So I had a string, a mason's twine, and I'd mark out the edge, and I would, all the grass that it in, incurred into the, uh, the garden would get cut and yanked out. 
And then I would put down a layer of, of usually some composted horse manure and turn that in. Yeah, he tilled every year. I like to try to get away from that. But if it's if, if there's stuff that doesn't belong there, especially it's perennial weeds, I'll turn it over with a shovel. I have no problem with that. I'll turn it with a shovel. I'm not going to run a tiller through it except maybe the first year because it compacts the soil below. Or I'll get a broad fork and loosen it. But if your climate is a very hot climate, then it's more so that you want to be in the ground. Unless, do you get too wet? If you get too wet, then that's a big reason to go with raised berms. Do you get too dry? Big reason to go in ground. So don't overthink that. All I'm trying to say is don't feel like garden must be raised beds. I have to go out and I have to get two by, you know, two by six or two by eight or two by twelve pressure treated lumber and build a box, put it on the ground and fill it with dirt. It works really good. And in some places it's the best thing to do. But if you're blessed with a good piece of dirt, plant into it. That's what your forefathers did. That's what your grandparents did. And I'm coming at that, at this from that, that angle too today. The simplest approach that your grandparents and great grandparents took combined with the modern things we have that they did not and modern knowledge we have that they did not to improve our success. Um, can you either automate or simplify irrigation? I think this is important. Even in an area where maybe that soil is pretty good, if you can put in drip irrigation or you can put in some basic uh, shrub sprinklers and put just a valve or instead of sitting out there with a with a hose every day to water and you just walk out, turn on a switch, wait 10 minutes to turn it off, that makes raised beds a lot more forgiving in warm climates because you're not going to have them drying out anywhere near as fast. You're just not. Where if you're going to have to go out there and manually water you're going to get more water resiliency the deeper you are in the ground, if your ground supports that. Um, are you going to want borders? If you're going to want borders, and if so, why, then raised beds make sense. If because your your spouse thinks it looks it looks good that way and doesn't like it if it's just a patch of ground with, with plants growing out of it, then okay. But understand why you're doing it. Don't just do it because everybody else does it. And where you're going to get your material and how much will it cost? See, if I have decent soil and I can go buy a yard of compost, I can put in a bunch of beds with that. But if you think about it this way, let's say I'm going to put in a standard size bed, double reach bed, four foot by eight foot. That is, that is like the most popular raised bed size that there is. Four foot by eight foot, and I'm going to build it with landscaping timbers. I'm going to stack it four landscape timbers high. That's going to give me a foot of depth. So now I am four foot by eight foot by one foot. Well, I need about 1.1 cubic yards of material to fill that in. Call it a yard because we're going to leave some head space for some mulching. So I need, and I'm probably not going to want to plant it to pure compost. So I'm going to have to come up with some sort of a soil mix, and I'm going to have to come up with a yard per bed. Where if I'm planting it to the ground, I don't have that concern. You know, I can take that yard of compost and I can put that over easily. Put that over about six equivalent beds, one sixth each, and it, you know, two inches of cover, and I can turn that in, and I can be up and running with six beds for the same amount of material as one. So I want you to kind of think about that today. I don't want to get deep into you know your soil mix, but I will tell you that some of the amendments I'm going to give you are going to help with that. 
But probably the best thing that you can do if you have to buy material is to make a, a diverse mix. I, I'm not a huge fan of using peat moss anymore. And, and it, it, even though it does work pretty good, it certainly helps lighten the soil. Um, I'm listening to Howard Garrett, who's kind of like one of my mentors in this world, he said, you know, peat moss is, is sterile. That's why stuff lives in a peat bog for like forever. It, it, it's counter to microorganisms developing. And one of the things we're trying to do as gardeners is develop my, positive, beneficial microorganisms in the soil. It won't kill them. It just certainly isn't the place for them. It's not the media for them to develop in. And I, I think I might be oversimplifying because a peat bog is compacted. There's nothing but peat. It's anaerobic. We put it in the soil. It's all mixed together. It's organic matter. It starts to break down. But it, it does make sense. But using mostly compost, topsoil, and some composted cow manure, if you're having to buy your materials, that's a great mix. And you can add some green sand and lava sand to that, maybe some expanded shale. We'll talk about those later. Small amounts of that relative and get a good, fluffy environment, and you're going to have great results. You're going to have great results. But when you're, when you're doing that calculation to determine whether you want to do raised beds or not, you know, source what you can locally, find out, are you going to be going to buy bags of stuff from Home Depot or Lowe's? They have some good organic soil products and things like that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It just adds up. Or do you have a place where you can go get it by the truckload? If you can get it by the truckload, and you have a good soil mix that you can make better with amendments at a local place where you can get it by the truckload, most trucks can, you know, half ton or above can carry two yards of soil. So you can go on two beds per truckload, basically, and more like three when we start adding some other stuff into it. And, and that's probably not real expensive to do. How big do you want your garden to be? I recommend in your first year, probably no bigger than four, four by eight beds for your first year. That's plenty of space. That'll grow plenty of stuff. You want to grow corn and stuff like that? Let's put that in the second year. Let's not do high, you know, high space, low yield crops in our first year. And, and again, this is all about making that determination. Do I or do I not go with raised beds? Okay, I want to talk a little bit about your plants. I really recommend buying plants your first year and buy anything you want to grow and throw it in the ground and see how it does. Um, I want to start out with a little bit why I recommend that. Because of the high success rate. It's a very high success rate for you if you do that. You get plants that are well started, nice and stocky, good root systems. You put them into a good soil mixture or a good amended soil. You give them mulch, you give them irrigation, and you give them the amendments that I'm going to give you at the end of the day. And guess what? They grow. They always grow. You put seeds in the ground, sometimes they come up a little bit, some pest takes them out. It's before the stems are woody. You're trying to start your own seeds, you're not good at it yet. And I'll talk about some different plants that I always recommend you buy in your first year and plants that you can start your own seeds if you want to. And some that even if you're your first year, if you want to grow them, put them as seeds into the ground. Okay? I'll get to that in a second. But it's also the fact that there's a very broad uh, availability of varieties now. Back when I started this show and you looked in a, a, a seed catalog, Uh, like Terroir Seeds Online or Victory Seed Companies, the companies that, that help us, or Baker Creek and all these great seed companies, High Mowing, Peaceful Valley, you'd see these varieties of tomatoes you'd never heard of before, or maybe you heard them but you never saw one before. And now when I go to even the box stores, there's usually a good assortment of heirloom tomatoes, a good assortment of peppers. So you can get a lot of different things instead of just growing California Wonder Pepper. But there's nothing wrong with that pepper, by the way. Okay, 
or not just growing, you know, uh, husky cherry red tomatoes. You can find, you know, pear, yellow pear cherry tomatoes and things like that, and uh, grape tomatoes and all these different varieties of peppers and tomatoes and things that you used to not be able to find pre-started. And the cost isn't bad because you're, this is a learning year. So you're better spend a little more money and, and get success and learn from it because this way, if we're buying some of the plants, we don't have to worry about the skill of sorting seeds and getting them up and then, and then getting them from, from a seed to a start to a, a really healthy plant to outside in the garden. We don't have to worry about what happens after that. Okay? So if we, if we take that approach, we eliminate one of our points of failure in our learning year. We master that in our first year. And then next year, we know more about how our garden does. And we know what to start, where to invest in, what's expensive, what's affordable, and put them in. So here's some plants I always re recommend that new people buy. Peppers, tomatoes, broccoli, and cauliflower. Here's why. Peppers and tomatoes take quite a bit of work. Um... To start, you know, you're starting them in February and getting them up. And if you've done it and you had great success, good, keep doing it. But generally, there are two plants that people fail with a lot. They grow very slowly until they get to a certain size. And then once they get to a certain size, they develop enough root structure. You get them out in the yard and you get good fertility in them. You get good sun. You get long days. Then they take off. But in that initial stage, they grow very slow. Broccoli and cauliflower. I don't really recommend you grow cauliflower. I think it's a low-yielding crop. But I included it anyway because some people like it. I'm not a fan. I do like broccoli. I think it's a much better crop if you're in the right parts of the country for it. Because when you get a broccoli head, it grows. You get a big broccoli head, you cut it off, and little shoots come back. You can put in a, a, a bed of broccoli, and you can eat broccoli all year long. If you live like, let's say, Virginia North. Down here, you, your broccoli, you should, be, you should be harvesting shoots by now in Texas, honestly. Um, it, it, and it's, it's just not going to do well by the time you get into, you know, late spring. It gets too hot for it. Then you may turn around and put new plants in in like August and grow a fall crop of it. That's great. That's, that's actually the best time to do it here. The reason I include those two is generally you can get very affordable six packs of them. And they're another plant that takes a little bit of a learning curve to get good with starting on your own. Here's some, and all the plants I'm going to name, these are the things I recommend you start out with your first year. Because you're going to have good yields and high success rates out of at least some of them. You want to grow something else? Fine. You don't want to grow one of them? Fine. Okay. I'm going to mention radishes. I don't grow them. I don't like them. I do grow daikon. I'm talking about regular red cherry radishes. Okay. I don't grow them because I don't like them. You don't like something? Don't grow it. But if you take a variety of things out of what I'm going to give you today, some of them are going to work. And they're going to become your go-tos. All right. Um, next. Uh, beets and beans. I recommend you plant from seed, uh, also peas. So your beets, your beans, and your, your, your peas. I recommend all of those, if you want to grow them, you plant them from seed because they just don't transplant very well. And you plant them in such numbers that they don't really effectively make sense to, to start from, you know, in little pots. Radishes are so fast growing, they don't really make sense to plant any other way than directly into your, your garden. Arugula. I recommend you sprinkle arugula seed everywhere and wherever it grows, encourage it. Let it grow as understory, and if, in most places, if you let some go to seed, it'll almost become perennial in a lot of gardens. It is a fantastic green. You can start, now, this is one of those ones, you want to start some from seed uh, in, in little pots and put them out, that's fine. And you want to do both to see which works? 
fine. But definitely arugula is a great direct sow. Dill. Dill has so much value, and you can get a lot of seed for next to nothing. Once the conditions are right for it, pull mulch black, sprinkle dill around, put the mulch back over wherever it comes up, encourage it, and that's your dill spot. Right? And if it'll grow in with your tomatoes, it'll grow, you know, wherever. Um, also, uh, your squash. Squash to me don't make a lot of sense to start in pots, but if you want to, it's okay. And they're a plant that's pretty easy to start from seed on your own. And melons as well, direct so. And if you think about that list, that's a pretty good list of stuff. Now, there are some plants that you can either buy pre-started or are really easy to start yourself and make a lot of sense to include in your garden. One is chard. I think all first-year gardeners should grow Swiss chard. Um, some places put it directly in the ground. It does great. But it, it's one of those plants that it just seems like it should direct so beautifully. It's basically a beet that you eat the greens of. But it just seems to work better for me if I start it uh, under grow lights or in a greenhouse or something like that. And it's, it's widely available now in box stores where you can buy a couple pre-started plants. Two or three plants of chard. And you do cut and come again with it. You'll, you'll pick it all year. Lettuces, I think they make sense for direct sow, but also they make sense as a plant for beginners to do with their seed starting with. Basil, that's another one. You can direct sow it, uh, and I, I'm big on, I throw basil seed everywhere. I buy about a pound. And I had my whole field full of basil out where I was talking about the zucchini earlier. But if you want a few nice plants in your garden, really easy plant to start from seed. And a lot of times it's available at the box stores, you know, globe basil, uh, sweet basil, different varieties of basil. Those are great plants to buy, too. They're bang on tough. They're going to have success. So any way you want with them, but they are one. If you want to do yourself from seed, fine. Parsley is another one you can do from seed, fine. And chives. The way I recommend you do chives is you want to use a fairly large container, like uh, like Dixie cup size, put some holes in this little drain, fill it with your potting mix, and sprinkle chives in there, like you're putting pepper on like some food. And you know, get a good little plug of chives, and then put those out into your gardens and in, in, in your empty spaces. And you can every year actually dig them up and divide them and replant them, and they'll go perennial for you that way. And you'll keep getting more and more and more of them. And wherever there's a chive growing, there's not a weed growing. And they're just great for cut and come again, over and over and over again. So those are kind of the, the go-tos, and I'll just run through the list again. And you can go to the show notes for today, and you can see kind of how I classify them. And understand that all the ones I recommend starting yourself, you can buy as well in containers. Okay, they are peppers, tomatoes, broccoli, cauliflower if you like it, um, peas and beans, beets, radishes, arugula, dill, squash, melons, chard, lettuce, basil, parsley, and chives. That'll give you a great yield and a great start in your first year. The next plant I recommend, and it's the last one I'm going to, because it's not a, a plant variety show today, but sweet potato. I think everybody should grow sweet potato because you can grow it as far north as you can think of pretty much unless you're in like ridiculous zone two Alaska or something like that. And you can grow it all the way into the deep south. And it's a plant that people just don't get the value of it. The tubers are your bonus at the end of the year. The point of sweet potatoes is the greens. Sweet potatoes produce an edible green. Once they start growing, you can cut them and they grow back. You cut them and they grow back. And you cut them and they grow back. And you cut them and they grow back. And actually, you're cutting them actually kind of spurs them a little bit more toward tuber production. So the cutting is good for them. Once you have some growing, you can cut a piece of it, strip the leaves off of half of the thing, stick it in moist soil somewhere, give it shade for a few days. It'll root and start growing again. 
It, it's, it's almost indestructible. The greens are good raw, chopped up in a salad, and they're fantastic sautéed. And I'm not going to get into cooking sweet potato greens today, but I'm just going to say you cook them just long enough to wilt them and stop. And they're fantastic. And they're the one thing that out of my little garden that I, I, I got huge yields of this year because I didn't pay attention to my garden this year. I had too much else going on this year. And, and I was in the middle of this conversion process of going to more of an aquaponics setup. You want a show on that? I'll do a show in the future when I get everything done. So you, I can give you the full overlay of my system. Today we're talking about growing food in the ground. Um, but sweet potato. And there's no need to buy sweet potato slips. If you can find an organic sweet potato of the variety that you want, take a, a shallow pan, fill it with water, lay the potato on its side in it. It'll start sprouting slips, which are just little growing pieces of sweet potato. You pull them off and stick them in a cup of water until they root nicely and put them in the ground. That's it. And in, in sub-southern climates, you can leave a few tubers in the ground, and they'll come up again next year like perennials. Not everywhere, but it's worth a try. So sweet potato, definitely. So bed establishment. Uh, I really recommend, in spite of all of the hype, and it's not even hype, all of the good things about no-till, that when you establish a bed in your first year, unless you're doing a raised bed where it happens because you just mix it up and throw it in there, if you're planting into your native soil, you double-dig it, And I'll go this far. I recommend that if you're going to build, you know, you're going to use uh, two by eight lumber and build box raised beds standard style, and you're going to fill them with something. I still recommend you double dig what goes underneath there. You double dig it. You pull all of the grass and, and, and stuff like that out of it, and then maybe put down a weed blocker that uh, 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 that will decay like cardboard or newspaper, and then you put your fill on top of it. And, and, and stop trying this whole, like, tilling is evil all the time thing. Tilling works or farmers wouldn't do it. What we want to do is we want to get the soil going. We want to get it aerated. We want to change the structure. We want to disturb it in a positive manner. And then we want to let nature do the work from then on if we can. And if I go to plant my garden bed next year and I let it get away from me a little bit and there's a bunch of grass and shit in it, guess what? It's getting tilled. It's the easiest way to fix that problem. If I've done a good job, I've kept the weeds out of it, I've kept the, the, the Bermuda grass out of it and whatever, then it's not getting tilled. Then we're going we're gonna to pull back the old mulch, mulch that's left on it. We're going to pull up the few little odds and end weeds that are in there. We're going to put down some fresh compost. We're going to put back that, that old mulch. We're going to put a new layer of fresh mulch on it. We're going to pull that shit back and we're going to plant into it and we're never going to till it again. That's the goal But in establishment, double digging. What does double digging mean? Double dig means that we're going to dig down twice the depth that we think our roots are going to go, which is, which is about a foot. And we're going to dig, basically, if we have a four foot by eight foot bed that we're putting in, or no matter how long it is, we're going to dig out about a foot completely out. And we're going to take that dirt and put it something like a wheelbarrow. We're going to take it up to the other end of the bed. And we'll put down a tarp or a piece of cardboard or something to make it easy to clean up. And we're going to dump it on the ground. We're going to go back to where we were and we're going to dig the next foot and fill the hole. Then we're going to move down and we're going to keep filling the hole as we go. So you get out. It makes it very easy to dig and we're turning the soil completely over. And then when we get that last hole, we'll take the dirt that we dumped at the end and we'll put it in the hole. And then we'll take whatever amendments, composts, etc. that we're going to add to our soil and we'll, we'll, we'll put that on the top of our soil and we'll, we'll kind of mix that in a little bit. 
so that it's mostly on the surface. And we'll let nature do the work from there. It, it really is that simple. And I'm a huge believer in mulching with wood chips. And I'll steal all the nitrogen. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. That's how I, every time I hear it. Shut the F up. Wood chips are not going to steal all the nitrogen out of your soil. And when we add the amendments that we're going to add, it's not going to matter anyway. But if that's you, shut up. And I know that sounds insulting, but it's, it's eight and a half years of hearing the bullshit while I'm growing tomato vines as big around as my wrist out of wood mulched beds. You know, if you want to get an overview of how good this works, I don't actually like this video, but Google Back to Eden Gardening and watch the YouTube documentary, um, the, the Back to Eden Method. And I'll tell you what I don't like about it. Some people think it's because I'm not religious. I don't like all the scripture in it. I could care less about that. I couldn't care less about that. It doesn't matter to me. What I matter is it's like, it's the Back to Eden Method. No, it's mulching. It's been going on for 50, 100, 1,000 years. My grandfather had me doing it when I was knee-high to a grasshopper. It's not the Back to Eden Method. It's wood mulch. But it does prove that it works. It puts a skin on the soil. It keeps all the organisms happy. It reduces temperatures. Well, it, there are some plants that you... Actually, you don't want it up against the stems of any of your plants. So you pull it back from the point where your plant comes out of the ground a little bit. And it just works fantastic. It's cheap. It's available everywhere. So definitely mulch with wood chips when you establish your garden bed. You will thank me for it later. Weed block. I want to throw a little thing. It's even not in my notes here, but I'll talk a little bit about weed blocking. If you are not going to have time to at least once every three days go out to your garden and pull every weed that you see, especially in your first year, out of there until you get the fertility up to where the weeds become less of a problem, use weed blocker. Standard cloth Roll out weed blocker. Once you get your bed prepared, before you add your mulch, lay it down, put it in with staples. You can you know, find those on Amazon or what have you or the local hardware store. Cut holes when you put your plants in. If you're going to do seeds, then you pull your mulch back and you make a line for a furrow. You take a razor knife and you cut a slit. You pull it back. You cut your furrow in, you put your seeds on, you put your dirt back on, you push your mulch right up to the edge of it, and you let that come up through there. It won't be as effective, but it will be highly effective. If you want to do it in a way where it's only going to be kind of a first-year thing, and you want to eventually not use a weed blocker, wet cardboard, but you got to understand this. you got to keep it wet. If it dries out, it will become hydrophobic. You'll be watering your garden. It'll shed right off of the cardboard underneath your mulch. You'll have no idea. Your plants will be dying and, and dehydrating beneath it. You've got to keep it wet. And the best thing to do is when you first add it, soak it. Soak it completely soaked so that it makes soil contact. There's no bubbles in it, so it becomes flexible. And that's actually a great way to go. It's a better way than the synthetic weed blocker. The synthetic weed blocker is cheap and it works. The downside is it has a 25-year warranty. No, it doesn't because they know no one's ever going to claim it. And, and the, they're marketing that not to, to, to vegetable gardeners because you, you have to do some of your soil every year. They're marketing that to flower beds in the front of HOAs where they put it all down, they plant the rhododendrons and shit like that, and they throw mulch on top of it, and they never dig it up again. Okay, that's not you. So the, the downside is next year 
When you pull the mulch back, you, you just pull that. You forget about using it in a second. You pull it out of the ground, you throw it away, and you put down a fresh layer of it. But it does work. It does make your life easy. It will, it will eliminate 80% of your weed problems. The 20% you still have, they'll be more vigorous weeds because they'll find a hole and they'll be protected just like your plants are. But, but it'll make your life easier. If you don't want to do any kind of weed blocking, I think that's best actually. But only if you're going to be able to give your garden at least every other day maintenance. And that doesn't mean go out and pick a few tomatoes and come back in. That means you're going to take the time at least every two to three days maximum to look and pull every weed out before it gets a, a, a kind of a head up and going. Because certain things like Bermuda grass and Johnson grass and crab grass, once they get a head up, you think you got them off that one piece and it comes back and it comes back and it comes back. You stay on it long enough, even that root will die. But you've got to be on it. If you take three-week vacations in the summer and you're going to be gone for three weeks and somebody's going to watch your garden, put down freaking weed blocker. You got to. You absolutely got to. Okay. So now I want to talk about things that will make your plant successful almost no matter what, assuming you have a decent soil structure, even if it's not the best fertility as far as soil goes in your first year. You keep it watered, but you don't overwater, and you're there to pay attention to when things are going wrong and fix them. If you'll do those things and use these products, and it's a laundry list, you're going to have success. Okay, number one is I believe you need a good balanced NPK fertilizer. Now, if we were doing the conventional route, we would go down to the hardware store and we would buy a big giant bag of 14-14-14 granulized commercial fertilizer. If you just want food and you did that, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to recommend it, but I'm not going to put you down for it. And you can still eventually go all natural, organic, etc., Okay, And it does work. But my view is we're putting in a long-term asset here. We're putting in something we want to get better every year, and we want to stop doing as much of the things that we're going to talk about that we're doing. We want to do less and less amendments and work every year. So the best thing I found for that broad-spectrum routine fertilization throughout the season, whenever your plants look a little sad, We're going to add it. We're going to add it when we plant. We're going to add it two weeks after we plant. We're going to add it four weeks after our initial planting. So in our first month, we're going to do it three times, and then we're going to do it as necessary. We're going to definitely do it mid-season, and we're definitely going to do it if we go into a fall garden, or we're definitely going to do it when we go end of season to be ready for next year even. It's a liquid fertilizer. It's called Dr. Earth 1014 Premium Organic All-Purpose Fertilizer. Okay? You don't need to write it down. You can go to the show notes today for 1957. I have instead of doing it down in the resources I, next to every one of these in this list, I have a link to where you can get it on Amazon. If you can buy it for less locally, go ahead. This is not Jack's infomercial for shit on Amazon. I'm just telling you the products I actually use. I'm showing them to you so you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know they work. This is a 444 fertilizer. In liquid form, meaning it's highly bioavailable. So when we put it onto the soil, those plants can get all four, all three of those main nutrients. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Those are the three nutrients plants must have to grow. And they can grow with that in the absence of almost everything else, even if they don't grow optimally in that. Okay? 
This is why commercial ag is such a problem. They figured out what I just said. They get granulized, balanced fertilizer. They throw that shit on the field, and the plants grow no matter how bad they abuse the field. We're not going to abuse it, but yet we want the same guaranteed growth rate, and this will give it to you. To address the same need, we're going to use a product called Garrett Juice Plus. The plus means it includes fish emulsion. It's like a one-to-one. It's also a liquid, but it works really great. Is a foliar feed. What does that mean? That means we're going to buy a little sprayer. We can buy a little hand spray bottle. If we have a small garden, if we have a larger garden, go out and buy like a one, one-and-a-half-gallon tank sprayer with a little wand. You, you put your, your uh, garret juice in there with water. You pump it up and you spray it. Okay? They're not expensive. They're a few bucks. I'll put a link to one of those in the show notes for you as well. But, I mean, this is I'd source that locally probably. Okay? Uh, if you have a huge garden, you can get a backpack sprayer. I have one I recommend, but we're not going to worry about that today because this is a new person show. If you want to know what backpack sprayer I recommend, email me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. I'll send you a link. Um, but we're going to use that Garrett Juice Plus. We're going to also use that as a soil drench because it's a different source of that NPK, and it has other things in it that improve the uh, beneficial organisms in the soil, the good guys. So when we do our initial planning, we're going to do a fertilization with Dr. Earth, and we're going to do basically like a tonification, think of it that, with our, 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 uh, doctor, our Garrett juice, Dr. Garrett juice, okay? And then going forward, when we do a fertilization with Dr. Earth, we're going to do a foliar feed with Garrett juice. And there's a lot of other great things about Garrett juice I won't cover today. I'm just talking about getting your freaking vegetable garden to go. The next thing you might consider adding that will be like a long-term fertility yield and will reduce the number of applications you have to do through the season is a mixture of blood and bone fertilizer. And the best place I've found to get this is you buy the combo pack from miracle Grow. miracle Grow, it's scotch and scotch is really... Shut up. It's an organic product, okay? Sometimes companies make good products and shitty products. And if we want them to make more good products, we buy the good products from them and we don't buy the shitty products from them. So blood and bone meal. The way I recommend you use this is when you're doing your plants. This is mainly for your plants you're going to put in the hole. Get yourself a small cup and put a few tablespoons of bone meal and a few tablespoons of blood meal in the cup and mix it up. And when you plant your plant, just reach in and grab a big pinch, about a, a, close to a tablespoon, and sprinkle it in your hole. Put your plant into your hole and cover it back up and, and go on about your business. And then we do all these other things. That is going to be a great nitrogen boost, and it's going to be a great mineral boost to the plant that's right there at the roots as it's being established. And it's not going to use it all, and little bits of that are going to carry over into our next season when we're going to do it again. We're constantly building fertility in our, our beds. Because we have no, we don't, we're not a farm. We don't have a bunch of erosion. All, all this stuff's not washing away and going down. We have good, healthy soil that's holding on to nutrients. The next one, and this is, okay, so... I kind of messed up there. Got to have it if you want my, you to guarantee success with this method. The Dr. Earth and the Garrett Juice. Got to have it. Nice to have the blood and bone. Okay? The next one is another nice to have. But, man, I have seen it just make plants. Just, ooh, I, I don't even really know how to explain it. It's kind of like just like, it's almost like put them on steroids. Don't worry, it's not steroids. It's uh, liquid kelp. 
And I use GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp as my brand of choice. I think it's a very cost-effective solution. And I use it primarily as a foliar feed. So what I'm going to do with my foliar feeding regimen, when, when I want to guarantee my vegetables, week one, I'm going to foliar feed with garret juice. Week two, I'm going to foliar feed with liquid kelp. Week three, garret juice. Week four, liquid kelp. After I get that far, I'll do it as needed. But I'm going to do both at least once a month at that point. But that first month, I'm going to foliar feed them every week so they get big and strong and healthy. The thing with the liquid kelp is it's not just a fertility boost. It has all types of sea minerals that it's absorbed in the kelp. And, and that's, that's giving a direct mineral nutrient yield to the plant. And when you're spraying your plants, a lot of it's landing in your soil. It's not all going directly to the plant. We're imbibing the soil with all these nutrients as well. Using a soil drench with that once in a while, good idea too. But again, Dr. Earth Garrett's got to have it. Blood and bone and, and liquid kelp, nice to have. Um, the next two things are going to address the four most common nutrient deficiencies other than NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, that plants have. It takes a little bit of doing, but you can look at plants and learn to tell that plant is deficient in iron, that plant is deficient in zinc, that plant is deficient in calcium, or that plant is deficient in magnesium. Usually if it's magnesium or calcium, it's both, because they need both to be able to absorb the other. Okay. And with all the stuff we're doing, you shouldn't need these two products. These are your first aid kit, or I just don't give a shit and I want to make sure it's not a problem. It's up to you. But one is Liquinox Iron Zinc Chelated Solution. The, the chelated makes it very, very highly absorbable. A little bottle goes a long way. If you keep it in a nice, cool, dark area, it'll store for multiple seasons, so your investment is well protected. It is best supplied as a foliar feed, and if you feel your plants need it, you can just add it to either your garret juice or your liquid kelp when you're doing your foliar feed. The other one is a product called Hydro Organics Earth Juice Cow Mag Plant Food. It's also chelated. These are all natural products, both of them. There's no chemicals here. And calcium is one of the places where people have big-time deficient calcium, magnesium, and they have them in soils that are loaded with it. If they have, like I do, hard water. When you're hitting your plants with hard water, And especially when you're moving toward the alkaline side with your water, and in many places you have this, it makes it very difficult for those plants to get at those nutrients. So by adding these two things to your foliar feeds, you're in good shape. And you can do it like in that establishment phase and then just watch them. Because what, what are the symptoms of these deficiencies? Well, uh, basically the plant doesn't look healthy. It develops chlorosis, which is where you see like green veins and yellow leaf. Uh, in some instances with calcium uh, and magnesium, you end up with like purple or reddish colors to the leaves or things like that. But in the end, they, they all kind of like deficiencies in any one of these four look very similar. And you could tell things like if it's on the lower leaves first, it's probably a calcium magnesium deficiency where if it's kind of uniform, it's probably more zinc iron and it could be something else. But those four are the most common. So if we, we foliar feed with those a couple times, then the plants get off to a good start. This is why this is important. 
When they're deficient in those nutrients, even if they don't start to show symptoms initially, they're weaker, they're more likely to be consumed by, um, by uh, uh, predators, by insects, and they're also more likely to succumb to diseases like blight. So if we kind of reinforce that as like a little extra booster shot, we ward that off. And if we start to see discoloration and things like that, in spite of the fact that we know we've got a good nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium thing going on, those are your go-tos. So those might be the things that I either want them because I want them and I want to make this easy, or if I start to see this, I'm going to get that and I'm going to use it like medicine. It's kind of a way, like a, like a booster vitamin. I would put them both in the nice-to-have-unless-you-need-them category. If you see mineral deficiencies, go to them. If you don't see mineral deficiencies, you don't want to use them, don't. For years, I didn't. But when I, when I started using them and I saw problems, I decided to use them as a preventative. Uh, the next one I talked about yesterday, but it's uh, endomycorrhizal fungal inoculation. <sighs> I, I, I'm going to put this in, you should do it. Okay, Not you have to have it, but you should do it, especially when you're establishing your new garden beds. If you work out square foot of your bed and work out the recommendation per acre so the recommendation per acre is 10 pounds to the acre and instead of even worrying about just putting it on your plants you actually inoculate the whole bed the the, the, the season you establish it you're going to kickstart the biological activity in that bed through the roof and that's a long-term investment in your soil and then i recommend you keep a little bit on hand and when you're doing if you're when you're planting your plants Just put a pinch of it in the hole when you put your transplant in so it gets direct root contact. If you're going to do the blood and bone fertilizer, then you know put about one-third of however much you're mixing up blood and bone, one-third of it to your, your, uh, your mycorrhizal fungi and mix it up and put it there in your hole. If you're doing seeds, right? Just a tiny pinch in with the seed, a tiny pinch in with the seed. It's fungus. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, multiply exponentially, and it's going to attach itself as those roots come out. That's if you're drilling seed, which means you poke a hole, you drop a seed. You poke a hole, you drop a seed. If you're doing a furrow where you're doing something like carrot, and you're, you, know, you cut up a, 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 a furrow, and then you sprinkle your seeds in, then just sprinkle a little bit of that all the way down the length of your furrow, it's one of the biggest bangs for the buck you'll ever get. Because, again, we're improving the, the, the population of beneficial fungi in our soil, and it's not going to die and dry up and go away. I'm a big fan of using a little bit of it every year, but the natural populations are going to grow over the years, and the requirement is going to go down. So this is nice to have, but you should do it, in, in my opinion, because, it's again, it's such a good recommendation. Okay, we have now... Seen to the plant's primary needs. We've got a, a well-irrigated garden that's mulched with good prepared soil. We have a regiment that's giving them their primary three nutrients and giving them a foliar feed on a regular basis and as needed. We have kind of a medic station set up with calcium, magnesium, iron, and zinc if they show mineral deficiencies because they're the most common mineral deficiencies. We're developing the soil's biology. And we'll talk a little bit about organic matter additions and things like that going forward, but we've come off to just a great start. And just mulching every year with new wood mulch, the soil that is contacting the, the, the wood, that will have a nitrogen exchange. That little thin layer, and it'll slowly incorporate itself into the soil over the year and build soil just from that. Okay? But what we want now is to develop mineral-rich soil 
that the plants that we're harvesting not only get all the minerals they need, but get such an abundance of mineral that we're eating nutrient-dense food. So the next four that I have, well, three really that I have for you do that. And I'm going to say some things about them as I talk about these next four. Azomite is basically a rock dust. It has almost every mineral that a plant could ever need in it. You don't need a lot of it. It's another one of those things that when you're mixing up your, your blood and bone, your mycorrhizal fungi, about an equal amount to the total of blood and bone can go in there. Or we can just put a sprinkle in every time we plant a new plant. But it's a good product to basically cover the, when we establish that bed, put a thin covering over the whole bed as we, as we turn in and mix our initial soil uh, mix. I would say it makes a good sense to run about five pounds of it to a four by eight bed. And I do have a link where you can get it on uh, Amazon. If you're going to use a small amounts method, it's, it's pretty cost effective even buying it that way because you don't need a ton of it. Um, but if you want to totally amend your bed with this stuff, source it locally. Find some because the shipping as you get heavier and heavier packaging goes up. So azomite, and, and again, that's basically a rock dust. The other one, I think you should see if you can get it locally, but even a little bit of this does such good things for guard. It would be worth buying on Amazon, and again, amending at about four to five pounds per bed um, to your soil is green sand. Green sand is a marine deposit sand. It looks a little bit more gray than it does green. It comes from veins that they find in, in the ocean floor, and it has all of those ocean minerals, and it, it's just fantastic. These are all nice to have. But I think you should pick one, okay? And then the next one is lava sand. Lava sand has tremendous nutrient. It also has the ability to help the soil retain moisture, and it will keep the soil light because it has all these little structures on it. And, and one of the things about lava sand is basically if you think of a lava rock, like they used to have in old school gas grills and all those little holes in that, lava sand looks like that on a microscopic level. That's all surface area for little things to live in, right, and to exist in. Plus, it has a nutrient exchange. Definitely source this locally. You cannot afford to buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon, but I feel so strongly that you shouldn't. I will not put a link for it to Amazon because the shipping is stupid. You could buy you know, a half a truckload of it for the cost of a small bag plus shipping. Literally. So find a local source for lava sand. And pick one of those or use a blend of all of them. And you really get this like supercharged soil. And the reason we're doing all this stuff, well, what about the chelated zinc and the calcium? In the first year that you're establishing a bed, the biology is only going to be so, so up. And plants generally can't go to a piece of lava sand and say, I'd like selenium, please. And the lava sand's like, here you go. There is a exchange that has to take place. And a lot of times that exchange requires biology. And that biology might actually be, here's a little organism in the soil that has the ability to get the selenium out of the lava sand. And the plant secretes something called an exudate, which is like a little sugar candy for the, for the organism. And the organism says, I want that. And basically the plant has it bound up. And the, selenium, and, and the plant's basically got that sitting there And if the organism gives it selenium, it'll let go of it. So the organism gets the selenium, the plant releases the exudate, and the exchange happens. So 
we're using those amendments until the biology is there. And we're also using them early in the year. Because what happens to living little creatures when the temperature goes down? Their activity level goes down. Some of them go to sleep. So a lot of times when you first put those plants out early in the season, even if you have good, healthy soil, the biology isn't up yet. So we're kick-starting it. But the long term, we're putting these nutrients into the soil in this form to make things better. Now, so those are all nice to have, but I think you should pick one at least. Now, the last one is simply nice to have. And it really helps with your soil's tiff, like your it, it, its its ability to be turned and ability to stay loose, and with uh, reducing irrigation requirements. And it's expanded shale. Again, source this locally. And this is something that I would, if you're going to make it part of your bed, maybe 10 pounds of expanded shale, maybe 15 pounds of expanded shale uh, to the bed, which is quite a lot because it weighs very little. Uh, it's basically a puffed shale. So think of it like uh, perlite. Except it's better. Because unlike perlite, it's not all going to float to the surface and wash away. Don't put perlite in your garden soil. It's fine for pots and a little bit that's in a start. It's fine, but don't mix it into your garden bed. It's all going to float to the surface eventually and go away. So just one good rainstorm and that's going to happen. And that's kind of it. If you use those things, use those crops, follow those rules, you're going to have success. And again, all of this is listed in today's show notes. And I'm going to go through them one more time again with the, you know, got to have it, nice to have it, should have it formula. Dr. Earth Premium Gold Organic All-Purpose Fertilizer. Got to have it or you got to find an organic, balanced NPK fertilizer. Okay. Garrett juice. Got to have it because it's too damn good not to. And if you want to make it yourself, you can go to dirtdoctor.com and type in Garrett juice and he gives you the instructions to make your own. I buy it because it's just easier. Garrett juice, just the foliar feed alone. A lot of times when we're growing stuff, even with like the aquaponics and all, if it looks like it's not getting enough nutrient, the fish activity's not high enough yet, you spray it with that stuff, boom, it's like magic. So those two are got to have it, or you got to have a foliar feed that you think is just as good. Blood and bone fertilizer. Nice to have it, gives your plants a nice kickstart. Isn't very expensive, you only use a little bit per plant, so it's kind of worth having. About a teaspoon of the mixture per plant is tons of nitrogen uh, for, for and, and tons of minerals for your plants. Um, GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp. Nice to have, but really nice to have. And if you think about it this way, if you're gonna, if you're gonna feed bi-weekly for a while, or, or, or weekly for a while with carrot juice, and then go to bi-weekly with carrot juice, if you are alternating the, the liquid, uh, kelp and the carrot juice, your cost is about the same anyway. You do have to buy two products initially, but your, your amortized cost across the, the season is about the same. They cost pretty close to the same amount of money and apply at about the same rates. But a really nice to have one. Hydro Organics Earth Juice, the Cal Mag. Don't need it unless you need it. Okay? But it's a good first aid kit item to have. The same thing with the Liquinox Iron Zinc Chelated Solution. If you see mineral deficiencies, I don't even try to go, I think that's calcium and do calcium. I do both of them right away. And if it goes away, it goes away. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Endomycorrhizae fungal inoculation, really recommended for bed establishment and really recommended to go along with your plants. It's a high return of investment, very small amounts at a time being used. Um, azomite, green sand and lava sand, nice to have, but you should have one of them. Expanded shell, nice to have. Nice to have, good for your irrigation reduction. Let me put it this way too. There's places where you live where you can just Dig up the dirt, plant stuff, make sure it's well mulched, use a little bit of compost, and everything will just do fantastic. 
If you live there, don't think you need any of this stuff. Be grateful for what you have, but really take care of your soul so it stays that way. And even if that's you, I would really consider things like the, the fungal inoculation, a good balanced organic fertilizer, and a good foliar feed like either garret juice or uh, liquid seaweed. All of those things just make your plants more resilient. Okay. Now, going forward, doing more in the first year, things like that, I want to talk compost bins and worms and all. Yes, yes, and yes. But if you take the approach I gave you today, and your first year you have lots of food come out of the garden, then you're motivated, your family's motivated, everybody's happy, you stick with it, and you develop all those other skills. If you're out trying to build a worm bin and a compost bin and start up your aquaponics and put swales in and build a food forest, all of that in your first year, and none of it gets done right, and your garden is a weed bed by the end of the season, you're demotivated and you're wondering why the hell is this so hard? How come these people over here on YouTube just put their shit in and it grows? Well, one, they don't just put their shit in and it grows. They do the types of things I'm talking about. Two, they've been doing it longer than you. Three, they focused on it until it was working before they did something else. So I think absolutely that it makes a lot of sense for you to build a worm bin right away and start feeding all of your vegetable waste to worms. And if you live where I live, you're going to have to do it inside, or what we figured out is we can do it in our wicking beds in our aquaponic system because the ants can't get in there because the quail eat them. But if you live where there's fire ants, it's going to be difficult to do an outdoor worm bin. Uh, but I think it's a fantastic idea. For most homeowners, a worm bin will do the majority of your composting for you. It really will. Um, unless you you know have lots of like waste from agriculture or something like that doing big compost piles, you're probably better off with a worm bin than any other form of compost. Because what most people do when they're trying to compost is like baking a cake and you keep adding batter before the cake's done. So the, the biological activity starts to break down the material in the compost and you go throw fresh compost on it. And then that starts to break and you throw more and then you throw more and you throw more. And you can do it. If you have a lot of yard clippings and stuff like that, you should do a big compost pile. But mostly if, if the 90% of what you're composting is off your dinner plate at the end of the day because, oh, that didn't get eaten, and when we cut that, that was left over, and we cut the end off of the celery, and we want to compost that, and here's all the tea leaves from the day and all that stuff, and here's the coffee grinds, then get a worm bin. Absolutely. But don't think that worm bin is going to make you a master gardener. That's why we're doing these other things. And then when I talk about amending the soil, we put those worm castings in that soil. And, and all of the other things that you think about and want to do, my suggestion is bolt down a high-production garden first, and then everything else gets easier. And you develop skills as you go. And again, the way that I've laid this out today is the way I think that will give you the largest chance of success that makes you happy in your first year, or even your third or fourth year, if you're, you're first and second and all, you're like unhappy with your results. The products that I recommended today are damn solid products. I use them all personally, or I would not recommend them. Uh, I'll tell you right now, lava sand, green sand, and azomite are in my beds. And as I'm building my wicking beds, small amounts of them will be added to my wicking beds. So let me make my entire system stronger. That's one of the beauties of aquaponics. They'll go systemic through the whole thing, including the ebb and flow stuff. Um, expanded shale, I don't use it. I don't use it. That's what I said. It's nice to have. 
If I was de dead hard set on doing raised bed gardening here, it would be my next addition to make things work a little bit better. Um, Dr. Earth, I have a jug of it in the, in the, in the garage. Uh, Garrett Juice, I have two jugs of it in the garage. Blood and Bone, I use it constantly. People who have been here for workshops, you've used it when you've planted here. Uh, the Liquid Kelp, I have a jug of it sitting out in the garage. So the, the Zinc and the CalMag, I got that too. I've got these exact products here, and I use them when my plants say, I need you. So, again, this wasn't an infomercial for Jack Stuff on Amazon, and I'm saying that because what are we going to do now? We're going to remind you that you can shop on Amazon and help support the work that we do through tspaz.com. And uh, I do have an item of review for you today. It is not <laughs> related to gardening. I guess you can buy one of those things that like plant bulbs with them or something like that. This is the DeWalt 20-volt uh, Power Max drill. And I'm a big fan of DeWalt power tools, as you guys know. I think this drill is the best way to get into their 20-volt product line. You get a charger, two batteries in the drill for uh, $99, so under $100. Uh, it's a great drill. Uh, the main reason I featured it as an item of the day, though, is because I was looking at getting a new drill. Be not really a new drill, another drill. I've got a bunch of stuff going on right now, and I'm doing some projects right now where I just like to have a drill with a, a ratchet driver in one and a freaking drill bit in the other and not be swapping them. Because I'm putting these lag bolts in for stands that I'm building for my, uh, my aquaponics system because I'm putting 100-gallon tanks on them. And, and I wanted you know something beefy to hold the main supports with so that that huge, heavy tank doesn't collapse. And um, it's just a pain in the ass. So I'm like, I'll get an extra drill. Two is one, one is none. So I find this drill. And I'm like, yeah, 100 bucks, and I get, you know, I already have switched over to 20 volt with the adapters and all, and I get two more batteries and another charger. I, the batteries and the charger would cost me that. So fine. So I buy it, and I look, and I see a bunch of, like, one-star reviews, like 10%-ish. I start reading them, and all of them are saying the batteries suck. The batteries won't take charge. The batteries suck. The batteries suck. And I'm reading them, and every person that I'm reading, I'm going, this is not a tool person. Something's up here. And I, I thought back to when I got my first adapter for my drill. And uh, I put the battery in it, and it went blink, blink, you know, for charge, blink, blink, blink. And it went set steady, which means it's, it's not charged, or it's fully charged. But it's not fully charged. I know, because I've run it down. I can take it out and push the button and see the charge indicator. It's got like one bar instead of four. And I stick it back in there, and it blink, blink, solid. What the hell's going on? So I, I, I pick it up, and I look at it, and I go, and it, it actually seats deeper. When it sees deeper, the, the, the bright red light stays on. So I pull it out and shove it back in there. It starts blinking, and it charges perfectly. A lot of uh, rechargeable chargers, when you put your battery, you just kind of set it in there, and once the light comes on, it's on. This charger, you got to push the battery till it clicks, and it blinks. So I put out a little one-minute video today showing that with this drill, and this is why I feel good about it. I, the, within 10 minutes, I had a comment from one of you guys saying, I bought that drill this year. I thought it sucked. I just saw your video. I went and tried it, and my drill's perfectly fine. Thank you. So that was more why I picked that than the product. I don't generally have a lot of power tools sale when I when I put one up, but this is a great drill to get in there. So if you're considering something for uh, that need in your life, take a look at it. DeWalt makes higher-end drills for sure. This is a great second drill, additional drill, drill for the kid, drill for the wife, things like that. Uh, additional drill just to have for the kind of thing I'm doing. Plenty of power, though. Great little drill. DeWalt 20-volt max uh, drill kit. Comes with a bag, two, two uh, batteries, and a charger. 
99 bucks. Uh, next up, uh, time for our song of the day. Song of the day today uh, is kind of a, a, a song that I would bet everybody out there has heard in their life. Jailhouse Rock by Elvis Presley. Jailhouse Rock. You know what I was amazed by? When uh, somebody recently posted uh, uh, something on Facebook that said, when you realize that Jailhouse Rock was about prison sex, ew, Elvis, that's nasty. And you know what that is? That's us judging a song from 1957 with 2017 viewpoints. Jailhouse Rock was just a freaking song. It was just a song. It had nothing to do with that. And it was kind of the epitome of rock music from the time. And and what I wanted to kind of point out to you, because I said, like, this is the age of rock, rock and roll. And I know those of you that are like 80s guys that were into, like, the hair bands and shit like that, or uh, 70s guys were into, like, classic rock, which is kind of more my man. Like, this is like the age of rock. It's the age of rock and roll. The genesis of where it all came from. And I'd just like to p tell you a few of the songs that made the the kind of top of the charts for the year this year that are those types of songs. Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. That'll Be the Day by Buddy Holly. That was number two and three this year. Elvis hit the chart again number five this year with All Shook Up. Jerry Lee Lewis had the number nine song of the year. Whole lot of shaking going on. The Everly Brothers, Bye Bye Love, was number 12 for the year. Danny and the Juniors with At the Hop. You, you see, Peggy Sue from Buddy Holly was number 15 for the year. Wake Up Little Susie, the Everly Brothers, number 16. Uh, and I could keep going. The, the, about half of the top 100 songs of the year are kind of rock and roll songs. There's some other stuff in there, the Banana Boat song and uh, Young Blood by the Coasters and stuff like that. But this really is when America shifted into the world of rock and roll from a music standpoint. And I personally feel music got better and better and better until 1996, and then something just went wrong. Um, but we have a long time to go before we get to 1996. Taking it back to 1957 today with Elvis Presley and Jailhouse Rock. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If Tom's you too, I'm you to know. Jail. The prison band was there and they began to wait. The band was jumping and the drum began to swing. You should have heard them locked out jailbirds.